Here at Making Movies is Hard, we want to express our support for the writer strike. We encourage our filmmaker comrades to look into how best they can be allies for the good fight. Please go to WGACONTRACT2023.org to support the cause. Making movies is hard, but casting for your movie doesn't have to be. With Casting Calls America, you can post your open roles for free in over 30 local markets nationwide. And when you post your roles, they will automatically post to IMDb Pro to get even more eyes on your project. All actor submissions are delivered to your user-friendly dashboard, making your casting process easy. You can even search our actor databases and invite actors you're interested in to audition to your project. Actors pay a small monthly fee and have all open roles delivered to their inbox each day. Get your project started today. It's casting made easy at castingcallsamerica.com. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. My first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, DVD, and Tubi. And I'm Eric Toms, a writer, director, comedian, whose first film, Bakersfield Noir, will be out later this year. This week, we welcome director Cynthia Hill and producer Christine Delp on the show to talk about their HBO docuseries, The Burden of Truth, which they made together across eight years. They talk about how they discovered the story, how they formed the series, and all all the hard work that went into these eight years of work. After that, we play another round of the game. But first, we have Eric today because Liz does not have childcare for two weeks, so Eric is going to be filling in for segments and doing some interviews too, which is really fun because this is an interview that we did together. But Eric, how are you doing? Welcome to the show, man. Thank you. I'm very excited. We've done I've done interviews before, but this is the first time I'm actually doing the intro and segments and all that stuff. And I'm in a perfect place for it because I was recently diagnosed with COVID. So I am currently in my bedroom by myself away from my family. So I am ready for all interviews and segments and any other thing really <laughs> we need to do because I'm just sitting by myself watching movies. If anyone listened to uh, our Patreon listeners, I guess, if anyone listened or watched the weekly meeting from last week, you'll see uh, Eric's state was pretty poor yesterday, but it looks like you've taken a turn for the good. How are you feeling? No, I would like to believe that, but really, I just changed my shirt. That's really, and I put on a hat. That's kind of, that's kind of all. I'm, this is very cosmetic. I am still okay. in the same place. I have, just off screen, I have a, a just a pile of like uh, half-eaten food and just, uh, my computer oh, no. is just a series of tabs that are all like half-watched films. So, it's 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 been fun, <laughs> but but kind of tedious as well. How are you doing, man? What you been up to? What what? No wait, wait I want to hear more about what you've been. So besides COVID, what else have you been up to? I mean, I know your movie is coming out soon, but like, is there an update on Bakersfield Noir? Like, is it in film festivals? Yep. Is it still in color? Like, what's the situation? Color correction is all done. Sound design is all done. Composition is all done. So now at this point, I need to QC everything and then send it off to our sound mixer and then send it over to the editor. And then we're done. We're done, done. And I will be finished my first feature film. So that is exciting. And just yesterday, I finished the screenplay for my next feature. Mm. That will take a very long time, though, because it is a hostage situation with eight people in one location. So that will require a series of read-throughs with actors to try and get the the tone down to try and get the the pacing down and all that good stuff so that'll be the next but then then there's as you know there's fundraising that's so far away 
So right now, focusing on the the feature, getting that all finished, and uh, I'm very excited about that. It's it's a big one for me. I'm I'm stoked that I that I finally finished something. What so what's your plan for film festivals? Are you waiting till the movie's completely done before you submit? Have you submitted already? Like what's your status there? No, I haven't submitted anything. Our co-host and wonderful person Liz Manichel has been very sweet and offered to watch the movie and kind of give me her advice. But I mean, it's it's a movie to give people a, a bit of a backstory. I made the movie for a thousand dollars because I had been trying to get an independent film off the ground forever, and I met Mark Duplass of the Duplass Brothers at the WGA at an event I paid to go to, and I had told him about my story, and he had said, "Man, just go make your movie for for a thousand bucks, just because it'll put you in a different echelon than other people. A lot of people talk about making a movie; very few people actually go out and do it. So I did it. The nice thing about it is the fact that I'm very proud of myself. The fact I took something from concept to completion, but at the end of the day, it does look like a thousand dollar movie. So I am forced to believe that any distributor would take it and just fold it into their library and I would never see it again. So tentatively, my plan is actually to eventivize the film and take it on the road. I, I've a, I'm a stand-up comic in a former life, and so I am very used to setting up screenings and shows and things like that. So I thought it'd be really fun to to take it on the road and kind of play non, kind of unique event spaces and like have a band open or something, charge five bucks at the door. And because I only made the movie for a very limited budget, it wouldn't take me very much to, to recoup my costs. And a big portion of it, it's not like I'm trying to get rich off of this thing. More than anything, I was it was, a, it was an education. I wanted to learn what are the things you really need in order to make a film? Where's, where's the fat? Where's the excess that you don't need? Where's the stuff that you can't cut at all? What's the stuff you really, really need? So more of it, if, by taking it out on the road, would be that I would have some sort of metric to show financiers when it came to mm-hmm. my next film. It's like, look, here's what I made for $1,000, then I made $3,000. So imagine if I had a bunch of money. <laughs> so that's kind of my thought process of now. Nice. Awesome, man. Yeah. Well, that's very cool. I don't have anything nearly as cool going on on my end. You have a baby coming. You're going to bring <laughs> a life into the world. That's... Is yes. it as cool as a movie? No, but it's still pretty cool, right? Yeah, it's cool. That's a cool thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, filmmaking wise, like I think yeah, for that, I'm, I'm just kind of in this stage where I'm, you know, reading and writing and trying to find the next thing and what, making that my focus. Where where are you getting your scripts from? Is like a yeah, no, I get them from all kinds of places. Mm. Friends, other collaborators, people that I used that I've worked with before or that I you know have known that you know worked with in other capacities but they're like, "Oh yeah, I'm writing a script. Would you send it to me?" Or people who like email me randomly and are like, "Oh, I saw the alternate or I saw this and it's really great. Like, I have a script. Will you read it, you know? And so there's sort of a variety. I tend to put, like, ones that I get from people I know personally up ahead of the ones that I get sent randomly. But, you know, depending on, like, what it is. Like, if it's, like, a um, like a sci-fi anything, then that usually goes higher than, like, a comedy or a drama or whatever. Yeah. But, yeah, so that's where they come from. And then, like, I'm writing my own. And, and I really need to be putting more focus on my writing I think, which is, you know, something I've been doing, but not doing enough. And I actually had a dream about my movie the other day, which is really interesting. The alternate or the new movie? New movie, the one I'm writing. And it's like kind of weird that it's like sort of my dream and my script are like intertwined into one. So, So, yeah. Anyways, and then, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm racing towards my son being born, which is, like, really exciting. Like, I'm going to have a vacation from my day job in two weeks, which is super exciting. Woo! 
and I basically feel like like I'm I'm really overloaded right now with stuff because I'm doing a side thing that I'm helping on, and I'm doing my you know my day job, and like when the day job ends, like the other one will be almost done too, and it's all gonna end like right before the the kid is born. So it's all kind of good timing, all coming 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 up. So right now I'm like really stressed and feeling the weight of the world. I'm not really putting a lot of time into myself personally or into my creative work. You know, I'm also just really excited to welcome this new life into the world and going to be really fun. You know, it's really exciting. And I'm having like flashbacks to the first time, you know, it's like, oh, I remember this. This is like the time where it's like, it could be any moment. It's it's coming <laughs> very soon. Just a couple weeks. Just a few weeks, and then it'll be he'll be here. She'll be here. It's like, well, have man. you have you decided on a name yet, or are we just gonna go with Eric? We're gonna go with Eric. Okay, good call. Good no, call. no, no. We're not that Eric. We're gonna go with E. T. Eric Toms. <laughs> we'll call him E. T. for sure, but it'll be like one like together. You know, it'll be Eric Perfect. Toms, like middle name producer, last name Steel Cell. For all of the pro- name problems I've had in my life, I can only lament your child's future. Yeah. No, we, we haven't really, like, we had a name for a long time that was, like, the number one, and then it just got vetoed, which is exactly what happened last time. We had a number one for, like, the, almost the whole time, and then it got vetoed near the end, and then we kind of came up with a new one. Yeah. And, or it was a backup that we liked, and so then the backup, and then, and then like, right before, like, maybe, like, a, like a week before, we came up with like four other ones and we were like, here are all the new ones. And it was like all these new, and, there were, and then we were basically like in the, in, in the uh, hotel, like, okay, is it going to be this one, this one, this one, or this one? Not the hotel, hotel, hospital. And then we were like, okay, no, it's this one. <laughs> Where do you with, have your children? So I don't know if it'll be similar. We have a new front runner, but yeah, I don't know if it's going to, yeah, I really don't know what's going to happen. We're going to have to wait and see see how we feel. But I think the new front runner right. is probably going to win. We'll see. I'm trying to even remember what that is. Okay. Are you oh, not yeah. saying I the remember. names out loud? I don't know. I don't want to. Okay. No, I don't okay. know. Okay, I'm not going to push. Yeah. Yeah, did I, I can't remember if I ever said it on the show before. But yeah, I'm just not going to. It's because, why not? I'll tell you offline, though. Okay. Okay, sure. What else? Yeah, that's it. Nothing else. What's <laughs> going on with me? But the one thing that is going on always with me is our Patreon page. Check out www.patreon.com slash podcast. And this is the way that we keep the show alive, that we keep this thing going. You know, without your support, the show would crumble and fall into nothingness. So thanks so much to all our wonderful patrons who have been with us for a very, very long time. Since we started a Patreon page in the first place. You guys are awesome. We love you. Can I give a quick shout out to one of the contributors to Making Movies is Hard, California Jones, who, for those who don't know, I run a thing called The Night of Shorts Night, which is a free short film showcase here in Los Angeles. So it's free for filmmakers to exhibit their work. It's free for them to submit. Free for audience members to come to watch. California Jones came to the show, checked it out, had a wonderful time, and then immediately emailed me the next day and said like, hey, I'd like to help out here's this QR code and email uh, a delivery service I think we can put on your show and it'll help people connect with the filmmakers. And I was like, my God, man, you're amazing. He is just always willing to help out and has such incredible ideas. And he's like, yeah, I'll build it for free. Don't worry about it. Man, you're the best. And also I am shocked by the fact too that he's been in California for, I don't know, six weeks and he's already he's already contributed more to the film industry than most people I know who've lived here for years. 
Well done, California. And also, don't forget to check out Jambox.io. They're a new royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on the high-quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Michael Bay and Martin Scorsese, and they even offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is pretty amazing. But without any more delay, here's our chat with Cynthia Hill and Christine Delp. Cynthia and Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi, thanks for having us. So can one of you give us the elevator pitch for Burden of Proof? I think Christine gets tagged for this one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. So Burden of Proof is a four-part documentary series that is now available on HBO and Max. The series is about the 1987 disappearance of a 15-year-old girl named Jennifer Pandos from a gated community in Williamsburg, Virginia. And the story is primarily told through her older brother, Stephen, as he finds out that over the years that his parents uh, are under investigation for her murder. And our film or series chronicles that his journey to find the truth of what happened and then things evolve and change and there's it goes in some unexpected places by the end of the series. Now, this is documentary, so we're always kind of fascinated by this. How many days roughly did you shoot? Do you have an idea or was it just we were getting the camera every day and we were going out? That is a really difficult question because (laughs) did film over seven and a half years. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of days, but the beauty of how we operate is that we typically have a very small crew. And a lot of days, it's just me, one of the camera folks. Most of the time, it was Blair Johnson. Sometimes it was Rex Miller. And Christine developed a new skill set while we were filming and became second camera on a lot of shoots. And so that allowed us to just be very nimble and go whenever there was action. If I had to guess how many days we shot, holy moly. Or actually, maybe an easier question is how many hours of footage did you end up with roughly? Oh, I haven't counted that either. A good bit. We probably shot, I don't know, 100 days. Mm, Wow. And Christine, how was that for you for all of a sudden learning and picking up camera? How was... Was that uh, I, terrifying or, or uh, kind of liberating? I was I was anxious about it at first, but Cynthia and Blair were both very encouraging. And they were like, Blair, Blair was like, I'm just going to set up all the settings for it. And then you just got to point and shoot. And then Cynthia told me that my framing was decent. And so that made me feel OK. <laughs> all right, um, nice. By the end of it, I, I, I actually learned a lot and I've been doing some more shooting on, on other things. So I'm glad it I'm glad it happened. And then if you can see say, what was the rough budget of the show? The, and it changed, it evolved over the course of the years, but we ended up with like a $2.5 million budget, I would say. Wow. And how was the project first brought to you? Like, what, what was the, the origin of everything? The origin story is a LinkedIn message that said, call me from Stephen Pandos. We got that in the summer of 2015. And Christine was new for the team. She had just graduated from college. And so her first duty was to clean out all of my unanswered emails and voicemails and LinkedIn messages and (laughs) 
So she came across this one and she followed up. And so almost eight years later, here we are. <laughs> wow. Amazing. <laughs> and, and, and did Steven reach out to you directly or to your production company or like, what was that? Like what LinkedIn was it? It was my personal LinkedIn, which I never look at. I still never look at it. Maybe I should look at it more since it did reach <laughs> Yeah. Maybe we should go through it again, Cynthia. <laughs> <laughs> it might cost you another eight years of your life though. So I mean. I know, That's true. I and, you know, it was, it's one of those things where you really know where something like that's going to, to lead you. And I think I've learned over the years to just been, just being open. And also Christine, after speaking to Stephen was awfully convincing that it was a worthwhile endeavor to at least investigate his story a little bit more. You, you kind of already ma- answered this because it's, it sounds like it was about a seven and a half, eight year journey along those lines. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. Seven and a half. Yep. I, I, what I do wonder though, is how much time did you spend actually in production? And then how much time did you spend going through all of this footage? Because I, I'm always fascinated by documentary filmmakers because with narrative, you're going out, you have a plan, you know what you're going to shoot. You've got storyboards, you have a script with documentary. It always feels like it's madness. It's just, it's most insane idea to me because I'm a controlling guy and like, I, you can't control anything. You're just hoping to right. capture lightning in a bottle. So right. what, how, how long were you in the field and then how long were you in the edit room? So just backing up on that whole like concept of madness. I mean, I, I'm almost the opposite where documentary is a much more comfortable world for me because mm. we can go out and magic can happen and we're there to capture it versus trying to plan for the magic, which planning is not my strongest uh, uh, suit. So I have a keychain that somebody made for me and it says winging it. And that's kind of <laughs> how I operate. But it allows, you know, again, for us to to be there for magical moments. And, you know, we do put in long hours waiting for that, but it's turned out to be worth it. As for our timeline, we we do everything simultaneously. Our editor, who is a genius, Tom Vickers, he came on board pretty soon. It was in 2016 because what you do in documentaries frequently is you 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 take the initial shoots and the footage and you try to put it into something that you can go out and convince either funders, either grants or development partners to come on board. So he was dabbling with this footage early on. And, you know, we do had, we did have simultaneous projects or projects that we're working on simultaneously. So it's not like we were only focused on this. So he was editing other things at the same time. But what that does allow you to do though, when you are working on something at this, you know, when you're editing it, as you're shooting it, you get a really good sense of what you're getting, what's working, what's not working. And you know pretty early on if you know the characters are engaging, if like the story's going somewhere. And so that's typically how we operate. We we joke sometimes that it feels like in our team and also I think in documentary in general that you have to say you're in development, production and post-production oftentimes all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true because we were in development. We had a development deal with HBO. So they hadn't come on yet for full production. We were shooting a lot. And also, as Cynthia said, our editor was editing. So it was all three at once for a number of years. Wow. Now, this is a question you can both answer. And I, whoever wants to go first can go first but if there is one thing 
about the series in any way, whether it's the final product or, or, or series or show or the process or whatever, like what is the one thing that you would change about the show? What would that be? Kristen, you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Hard. It's a hard question. I mean, I feel like my answer is, is maybe not exactly what you're looking for because I would have changed having to wait this long for it to be finished. Uh, I mean, having the patience, the patience was really hard, especially the last three years. I mean, we, we were submitting to festivals. We were, we had broadcast dates on the calendar and yet our story just kept evolving and we had to keep changing when we thought that it would be released. And Cynthia and I joke all the time that we're, we're the girls who cried documentary, like, oh yeah, our doc's coming out. And people after a while were like, okay, like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, right. three years but I guess I I wouldn't change it now because I think our story is so much stronger because of it and I guess for me because I'm a perfectionist a recovering perfectionist I like to say is that I want one more pass to finesse every episode (laughs) I think that's just the nature of being a filmmaker like you watch something that is complete and you see things that you would do a little slightly a different beat or a different way that you would mix something or a different shot that maybe you would use. And so that's the painful part for me is to actually watch it after it's locked because I still see little things that no one else sees, of course, but Tom and I, the editor, he and I just almost were like, we need a support group because after every showing, if we have to sit through it, we're just a basket case afterwards. (laughs) Yeah. I, I am curious and yes, I completely identify with that. It's it's always the thing like, man, did you see that light in the background? And 99% of people will be like, no, no, of course I didn't. I don't know what you're oh, talking yeah. about. But like you, of course, it will nag on your soul for the rest of your life. Oh, yes. So uh, why this story? I mean, this is a story, for those who don't know, this is a, a cold case about a, a young woman who disappears kind of into thin air. And it's her brother's year long, years long search to find out the truth. So what was it? How did this? What was it about this story that really kind of gripped you? Well, I mean, I think both of us early on felt like that this is a story about Stephen. This is a story about what trauma does to a person. And we both thought that that was really interesting. Cynthia's previous film, which was also on HBO, is called Private Violence, and it's about domestic violence. And that's also, I should say, why we connected with Stephen is because Stephen had watched that film and he saw elements of Cynthia's prior work in his own story. And I think we were interested in sort of exploring the psychology of that. And then also what happens to a family when you never get answers? What does that do to a family? And so for us, it was always the the emotional trauma dimensions of this story, not so much the mystery, although the mystery is extremely interesting. We also have spent a lot of time talking about that. But that's that's what really made us feel like that we needed to tell the story. Well, I want to. This is kind of like the same question, but like in a, a different, more detailed version. But like you know, you talked about this LinkedIn message that Stephen sent you. Like, what was the process in reacting to that? So, like, you you obviously maybe you set up a phone call. Like, did you go out with cameras right away? Did you do pre-interviews? Like, how did you kind of get the story down? Yeah, or like figure out there was a story there in the very beginning. Well, I. I called him. He said, call me. And I was doing my job trying to also be a perfectionist straight out of college and impress Cynthia. So I called him. 
And he started to tell me, you know, everything that had happened in his sister's case and his sort of experience of it all the way up until 2015, which if you watch the series, there's a a lot that happens. And it's an extremely compelling story. And as I was on the phone with him, I was Googling everything to see if it was if it was real, like it just sounded crazy, like the whole story. And as much as what I could tell, you know, from things online, there wasn't a lot online, but you know, the the broader swoops of it were, were true. And then what also struck me was just Stephen's character, the sort of certainty that he had that his that his father killed his sister and that his mother knew what happened and possibly helped cover it up or either couldn't remember, you know, what happened enough to sort of be able to say like the trauma of that blocked her memory. And I thought, you know, this man is extremely compelling as a character. And this is something that I think we have to explore. I, I have so many follow-up questions. So please go ahead, go ahead, Cynthia. Yeah, I was just going to follow up on Christine's story. And as she's on the phone with Stephen, I could tell that she was getting emotional. I mean, it was clearly something that was affecting her, but I didn't know if it was a good kind of emotional or a bad kind of emotional. So I made the signal for her to hang up on him because I thought maybe he was like some crazy person and she <laughs> took me away. And, and so when she, she hung up with him and started to convey the story back to me, you know, obviously it was super compelling. And then we spend the next couple of days just rehashing it. So that to me told me that there was enough there just because we were interested in it. And that's kind of my barometer. You know, are we interested enough to keep going back to this story? And so we invited Stephen to come to see us. And he brought this case file that he had obtained from the police department that went through everything that the police had done from like 2005 until 2014. And as soon as he walks in the door and we meet him, we start filming. And so the first time I meet him, we're filming him or filming with him. I want to dive into that a little bit more just because clearly this is an extremely personal story for this man. This is the story of his sister. This is his entire family that really was kind of ripped apart because of whatever happened. How do you gauge being invasive with someone and having a, you know, a camera in their face and asking them exceedingly personal questions and recording these things that I'm sure were very difficult for, for him to go through and balancing that with being respectful of boundaries and trying to have some semblance of, of empathy for what he's going through. Well, I think that, you know, this is a case where he wanted this story out there. You know, he came to us and so that immediately made the dynamic feel less invasive than if, you know, we had sort of come up with it and pitched it to him and had to convince him of participating. You know, for him, I think, you know, in some regards, I don't want to speak on behalf of him, but for, what from I, I know about him, you know, I think that some of it was this sort of wanting people to know that his father was responsible, which is what he thought in his head. And then I also think it was about justice for his sister, ultimately, and, you know, finding out the truth of what happened. And he so he was on board with that from the from the very beginning. I don't think that he necessarily knew that he was going to be the primary character that was going to drive the narrative. I remember this one conversation that we had and we were talking about another crime doc series that had just come out. This was a couple of years ago. 
And I was telling him that the protagonist, in my opinion, was not relatable. And I didn't really care for the series because I didn't care for the protagonist. And he pauses for a moment and he says, so who is the protagonist in our film that we're making? And I said, uh, well, you are. <laughs> and he's <laughs> like, I don't want to be the protagonist. And I was like, oh, Lord, have mercy. Too late, you know, <laughs> something that I think that it took him a good bit of time to to be comfortable with himself being the person that our story was focusing on, you know, and I think that he still doesn't want to necessarily think about it in that in those terms, like it's for him, it's still about justice for Jennifer. And, you know, for us, it is as well. So it is an interesting conversation when we do have them about, you know, whose story is it? How, how did you kind of get him to accept that and be okay with it? Because, I mean, he's, his, his picture's on the poster, you know, like he is the protagonist of this he's, movie. He's like front and center. Yeah. Yeah. How, how, did, how is that? How did you manage that as a, as a, you know, a partner? Well, it did take a seven and a half years. So he's had quite a, quite a bit of time <laughs> to get used to it. I, I still, still think he's uncomfortable with the idea of being in the spotlight. But I think he also swallows that with the idea, again, that this is going to do some good and that ultimately, you know, his sister's story is out there. And the story about what his family has gone through is also out there. And then hopefully that helps with other folks who are experiencing trauma within their own families. Hmm. Now, you've had such a varied career, (laughs) but what is it about true uh, true crime that that kind of uh, um, that draws you to it I would say that it doesn't I am not necessarily someone who thinks of true crime as like my go-to form and this was the first thing that I did that I would consider in that genre even though private violence may have had like some elements of it to me it's still about it's a very it's very much a character story and it's about this one character's journey and and about trauma and you know it's a bit of a slow burn at times and that is not how this genre operates and so what i think makes our series stand out is that it is a combination of how we typically tell stories that are character focused smashed up against this genre of a, you know crime dogs and i think it feels very different than what you typically would see because of that i'll i'll echo that oh, sorry i was just going to say i don't i don't i don't really love true crime either i mean a lot of it is really exploitative really not I don't I don't watch a lot of it I don't listen to a lot of it um but I think that in some ways us sort of not being fans of the genre made us made it feel different and you know I'm I'm proud of that so you're talking about the long period that it took to, to make the series. Was it always a series or was it ever a movie? Was it a longer series or was this always the intended thing? It was going to be a feature film for a very long time. And I mean, it was a feature film. Even when it became longer, it became just a longer feature film. And then <laughs> as we you know, kept going, it became obvious that for us to really be able to appeal to an audience in this climate that it was better broken up into parts. And so that was a little bit painful to begin with because we had thought of it for so long as, you know, a feature film and, and, and the pacing of a feature film versus a series, which is faster that, you know, is it the expectation is that you end each episode with like this cliffhanger and then you start up the next episode with kind of like picking up on where you left off and, 
So it was it was new for us in in that regard as as to making it a series. But I do think that the content does ultimately lend itself really well to the four part. And I think also that you know this is originally a cold case, right? And then if you've seen the series, I don't want to give too much away, but if you've seen it, it 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 heats back up again, and things start happening in real time, and it turns into a cinema verite true crime story where this family is experiencing this information and in real time. And for us to both have all of those plot points represented that were kept happening um, and also keep that sort of intimate character-driven story style, it it had to be a series. I'd like to talk a little bit about your your process. So now, Cynthia, you coming from, you had like a lot of cooking shows that you were beginning, starting off with, and then now moving into Burden of Proof. Is your process the same? To, to speak to what Christine was just talking about, you know, building a character and figuring out some sort of arc and and working all of that. Is that the same for, for kind of all documentaries or are you approaching each one differently? Well, my first work was feature films, feature doc films, you know, so I've always kind of been in that arena and and my previous work is all about characters and their journeys. And so even the the, the food shows, whenever we, we did those, those uh, when we first did our, our, our pilot for Chef's Life, I was told that it would never be successful or it was unprogrammable is what I was told because it didn't fit any genre. It wasn't like a, a clear enough cooking show. It wasn't a clear enough reality show. It wasn't a clear enough of documentary. And so we don't know how to program it. And so I was not deterred by that. I was, you know, motivated by the, you can't do it. And I think that that's what made it good and unique again is because it didn't look like anything in that genre at that time. And so I think that that's kind of how we operate is we we just m- make what feels right. And I know that's probably not a great answer <laughs> is, you know, how do you how would you teach somebody to do it? I honestly don't know. Because we operate and and me specifically, I'm just really instinctual when I'm in the field and I'm waiting for things to happen. And everything I do is like that, you know, whether it is, you know, a film about farm workers or a food show or a series about NASCAR teams or this, and I'm using air quotes, which I don't like, a crime doc. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> I operate in like that all the time. All right. I'm sorry. I got one more follow-up real quick. So Christine, so now, you know, Cynthia giving that answer and saying like, you know, she shoots from the hip and it sounds like you, you work, you know, from your gut and it's just whatever, you know, the story happens to be presenting you, you're following it. Christine, are you able to have you over the last couple of years, many years, I think at this point, been able to kind of anticipate what it is Cynthia is going to want or maybe the direction you two are going in? Or or how does that relationship work since you don't have an ABC kind of structure? I can read Cynthia pretty well at this point in time. She's smiling. I don't know. There's all she, she remains somewhat still of a mystery to me, you know. But no, I think so. I mean, the way we worked on this project was I pretty much did pre-interviews with 
almost everyone that appears in the in the in the series, either myself or our other producer, Andrea Weigel. And so, you know, we were tracking these folks down. We were sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, gaining their trust and knowing what they were going to say. And then we could come back to Cynthia and we could say, okay, this is what we're hearing. This is what we think is interesting. This is what might you might be interested in. And then when Cynthia would would go and she would meet with these people and she was filming, they would say things to her as if they were saying it for the first time because they had never t- talked with her before. And that, that worked really well for this series and I think create a nice, you know, authentic feel for everybody who's on camera. And I also, I just have to mention one other thing about the way Cynthia works because I think that this is really important is she does sound on almost all of our shoots. So she is doing audio and I think that that because she's listening to everything as she is directing, it means that she's picking up on things as a director that other people might not pick up on that then also shapes the ways that she later on works with an editor to craft scenes. Mm-hmm. And is that out of desire, Cynthia, to be the sound person or out of necessity because just to keep the, the, the team small and then just a really technical nerd question like, do you boom and mix together or do you have a boom operator? Like, how do you operate? At the beginning, it was definitely, I think, out of necessity just to keep a, a small crew. So it could just be a two person crew. Now it's out of desire and probably a little bit of con- control. I don't like giving up control, but it does serve me really well because like when we were doing the series on NASCAR, I would have, I had a, a six channel mixer and I would have five people loved. And I was also booming and I could hear what's going on. So I have all these voices in my head. And so I can, I know if there's action happening across the way because I can hear them talking and that would lead us to wherever the action was. Like, and if I had somebody else that was doing sound, I would miss all of that. And so I think because of that, it has led me to hang on to that, that job, even when maybe I should give it up, because I think I could probably focus on directing (laughs) a little bit more if I wasn't trying to mix six different channels of audio. But it is what it is, and I still do it. Did you? Is, how how do you watch the monitor one way when you're doing that? Is that even possible? I, I know. I have, I have so many technical questions right now. Please, go ahead. I mean, I do it by, again, listening. And, I, you know, obviously you glance down every now and then. Primarily, I glance down to make sure I'm still recording. That's the main reason I glanced down at the mix. Good one. <laughs> it's just to make sure it's still on. But generally speaking, I've you know I've just been doing it for so long now. It just is. It's just second nature. I I give it up. Like when we were doing the recreations, I didn't do the sound on those shoots because it was it was. I had to pay attention in a way that I'm, I typically would not, because when we're doing the Verite stuff, I've been working with the same team for so long that we don't even have, have to speak to each other. I remember this one comment from a crew chief that Chad Knauss, who was the crew chief chief for Jimmy Johnson for many, many, many years. He looked over at me after we'd been filming with him for a week. And he said, I've never seen anybody who could direct with their eyebrows. (laughs) So, (laughs) so, you know, it's like we can be quiet, but, you know, like I can give them eye signals or whatever. And they know with with Blair and with Rex and with Josh, they know exactly what I'm saying without saying it. And it's a really unique place to finally be. But it's because we've been doing it for 20 years. Mm. Yeah. Sometimes you throw a hand signal in there. There too. Yeah, or a 
like, God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) There's something to be said for a good God damn it. Whenever you're on set, that always we need that. (laughs) (laughs) So for, so for the monitor, do you even have a monitor on set then if you're not watching it or the DP or their Blair's just operating the camera, I imagine. Right. So there is no, like no one checking the monitor to make sure that the framing is good and all that stuff. Like that's just not happening. No, I mean, they, like they have like an extra monitor on board with them. So we don't have like an independent monitor that's you know stationed on a C stand somewhere. We just have monitors that I can look over their shoulder and I can see what's okay. going on. And so, you know, and I do give, you know, you know, some direction about tighters and tight tighter shots and wide shots and let's move back and, and things like that. But again, like we've been do- doing it for so long, like it's just really like, we just know what, we just know what to do in a scene. Is it, is it that also, you know the fact that you're you have the sound and you're mixing and everything else is that where you originally started you you started more of like kind of an, an audio version or were you were you always starting off with the the intent to be a director i went to pharmacy school so i didn't intend <laughs> on making films at all but when i started i was making my, my my first foray into it was making my own content and it was just easier for me to do the audio i tried shooting but my eyesight's not great so i'm not great at focusing all the time so i just inherited the 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 mixer and the boom you got good ears i don't have good ears anymore but because of the mask bar so oh, yeah <laughs> Now you had mentioned, so Stephen comes in the door, you immediately, you start filming. Did you have funding right off the bat? Did you have to shoot a little bit in order to take it out and pitch it? I mean, how did that whole process of, of, you know, getting your budget together and making sure that you were able to feed yourselves and keep the lights on over the the last seven and a half, eight years? Well, Uh, go ahead, Christine. Oh, sorry. Uh, Well, we, we pitched it pretty early on to HBO because again, Cynthia had worked with Nancy Abraham at HBO on on her last film. So I think it was like spring of 2016 where we sort of first told them about the story. But yes, we did we did shoot for, you know, a little bit without any funding in the, in the bank. And then I think Sundance gave us some development funding at the end of 2016. We got a smaller regional grant from Southern Documentaries Fund. But we also are, you know, again, we're working on other projects. We were working on that NASCAR series. We were working on A Chef's Life. And so we just kind of make, make everything work, as Cynthia always says. You make it work. <laughs> you have to. Like, that's just, if you're in this business and you want to stay in this big business, you figure out how to make it work. To be, you have to be very mobile and adaptable. And, you know, as, as you know, making movies is hard. So. <laughs> <laughs> what a great title. <laughs> yeah, I was like, man, it's appropriate for us to be on this show. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of that, what were some of the big challenges that you faced in telling the story, especially in the beginning that you were able to overcome through your filming and your in production in general? Yeah, I mean, we, again, I'm trying to not reveal too many plot points with this, but there were, there's one major plot point that you'll see in the film that, that we knew about. Um, or we suspected before Stephen did. And that was really hard. We had a lot of internal conversations about it as a film team, but also it was our duty as journalists to sort of confirm information and we couldn't get the police department on the record saying that it had happened. And so finally, when some of that information is revealed, 
to see then that the case is going in a different direction and is focusing on a different person, then we made the decision to sort of tell more to Stephen. But that was that was a really hard time in the project. Yeah. I, to, to follow up on that question a little bit. So, of course, Stephen reached out to you. He wanted to tell the story. But, of course, there's multiple players in this documentary. And I'm sure many of them did not want to talk about this and probably wanted the past to stay buried. So... How how active were you in reaching out to these people and trying to get these people to open up? Or were you just following Stephen and trying to be a fly on the wall? We very much took the lead in, in some of this. Like he he would make introductions, which made things easier, I, I would say, just because he's paving the road for us when we get there. But then, you know, Christine takes over for a lot of this and is working to make these relationships and making folks feel comfortable with with talking about what's going on. You know, we did have you know these conversations early on in the process about, you know, for this to be a viable story, we need certain folks to be involved. And, you know, Stephen, of course, we really wanted his mother. We really wanted his father. We really wanted the police department. And, you know, we wanted her friends. And so one by one, we checked off that list. And, you know, it, it took a long time. It took work, but we did it. And Christine, I think, would is it was wearing up carrying a lot of that burden for that part. Yeah, Christine, like what was what was that process like for you? And was this <laughs> Was this necessarily what you signed up for? Did you know this is the sort of thing that you were getting yourself into? Or was this just, today's the day, let's let's give it a shot? Oh, no. I mean, I, I learned so much, uh, you know, while doing this about what it means to be a documentary producer. Um, you know, I think that this story, there was so much pain among many different people. And the sort of desire to, again, have justice for Jennifer was shared by so many people, even though they may have other kinds of, you know, different goals. That goal was shared, I think, by everyone. And so it was about, you know, sort of capturing that in in sharing what our intentions were behind this film. And I think that that's why really pretty much, I mean, I, I'm trying, I was trying to think if there was anyone who, who didn't participate that we approached, and there may have been, but off the top of my head, I feel like that most people, most people did for those reasons. Okay, we have a about 15 minutes left. I want to shift gears to an, a, something that you'd mentioned way, way earlier, which was at one point you had HBO, like an HBO development deal for this. Can you just talk about like how HBO got involved and at what time they got involved and how that involvement might have shifted over the seven years plus? Yeah, so we we reached out to them in 2016. We had been working on it maybe like nine months at that time. And we had footage to show and you know, plot points, a proposal, I guess you could say. We didn't do anything like a pitch deck or that kind of thing at that time, which I know is very popular at the moment. And it was a development deal is not a tremendous amount of money. And I think it's an easy way for a broadcaster or a streamer to get on board early in a project. And I think that it's even become more popular in this day and time because I think it's harder for them to say yes to something outright. And so putting their you new know, dipping their toe into the pool to see if it's something they're going to be interested in, I think was 
it didn't I mean it it seemed I wouldn't say that it was easy, but I think because of the previous work that we had done with them, that they had some confidence and also thought the the story was was worthwhile and exploring. And we came back to them two years later in 2018. So it was not like an immediate, I don't know if we came back, I'm trying to think. 2018 is when they signed on for the for the production deal, but I'm not yeah. sure how long that took. You might have a better idea on that, Christine. Yeah, it, it was 2018. I'm not sure when it was like, you know, officially, you know, dotted and teed, but like, yes, it was around that time. But there was also a lot of significant story shifts that were happening along that time too, which I think made the project even more interesting. A lot of things with the case getting picked back up again was also around the same time when we were going back for the full production deal. And that's also in 2018 when our executive producers um, at Field of Vision also came on board to the project. And that was when things just sort of really started picking up for us. And I guess you could I guess you could say we're in production at that point, although it felt like longer. <laughs> <laughs> to, to get a little bit more wider scope, uh, you know, as I said, you know, a lot of the people attached to making movies is hard. We're all independent filmmakers. It feels like the last 10 years or so has been kind of an amazing time for documentaries. But again, as as the person who is not a documentarian, I, I don't know if I'm getting the, the, the right message or not. How do you feel documentaries are being treated now. I, I know that there's a lot of people who believe they're being churned out maybe a little too fast. I know the, the two of you have talked so much about wanting to find something that melt, felt emotionally relevant to you and you wanted to take time to craft characters. What is the world of documentary right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there is a real audience-led appetite for documentaries, which is really wonderful. But I also think that I would agree with other people that there is a lot of pressure on the way that the market has, has turned recently to create very quickly made, you know, some people call them insta-docs. And we've always felt fortunate in that this, you know, we were we were allowed to do the opposite of an insta-doc. We were allowed to take, you know, all of this time and really let the story breathe and have the patience to get where it does by the ending. And I think that's, you know, reflected in the craft of the filmmaking. But I think it's hard out there for documentary filmmakers right now. It's really hard. I think that, you know, there is a lot of interest and sort of celebrity and, you know, fun events and true crime, but sort of the tradition of like, you know, sticking with a story for a long time, a political story, a story that's really hard. I think there's less of an appetite for that among in the marketplace right now of the social in social issue stories are having a hard time right now. So I, I'm, I'm hoping that things sort of swing back in the opposite direction. And again, and those stories are able to be told because I think that that's why a lot of us got into documentary filmmaking to begin with is to tell those harder kinds of stories. Awesome. Okay. I think it's time. We have to get to our final six questions and we'll have you both answer these one at a time. So Cynthia, maybe we'll just start with you and you can answer this any way you want. So what's the first film you made and how do you feel about it now? And it could be your first feature. It could be your first short. It could be the first thing you ever shot with a camera however you want to, you know, interpret it, the question. The first film I made was a feature doc called Tobacco Money Feeds My Family. And it's still very precious to me, even with the three endings that it has. <laughs> I've learned a little bit more, but I, I'm still proud of it. Yeah. And the first film that I made, I uh, co-directed and produced a documentary short called Santuario, which is about an undocumented Guatemalan grandmother who 
ended up um, having to live in a church in sanctuary after facing deportation. And she lived there for four years all throughout the Trump presidency. And I also, uh, you know, it's my first time as a director on that project. And so there's many things that I would go back and change about it, both on the technical side and the storytelling side. But at the end of the day, that I'm proud of, of the film and I'm proud of the, the, the impact that it did have. And yeah, I wouldn't, I would do a lot of things differently, but I also feel good about it. What's some of the best filmmaking advice that you've ever received? I know. Mine's from Cynthia. <laughs> <laughs> Appropriate. <laughs> Maybe you go because I'm like, oh, I'm the one that's always telling, giving advice. <laughs> so. <laughs> What is, what is the best thing? <laughs> well, this is, I just shot my first fiction short and you said before the shoot, you were like, I know you and I know you have a plan because you always have a plan. I'm the planner. And she's like, she said, but you need to be able to make changes in the moment and be adaptable and see things, pay attention and see things that are not according to plan. And I think that some of the best things I got from that shoot was from that advice of being adaptable. And let's see, for me, I think it's always just sort of probably from Tom, the our editor is always giving me advice on, on things that he sees coming in. And so he's my barometer. And, you know, he's always telling me to not be so hard on myself. And probably that's, that's the best thing for me to hear, because I am, again, such a perfectionist. And, and so having, having the ability to be okay, when I, I go out in the field, and maybe I didn't get exactly what I wanted, or, you know, it's not, it doesn't look exactly the way that I had it in my head. And, you know, forgiving, being able to forgive myself of not being perfect all the time. And what's the worst filmmaking advice you've ever received? It's unprogrammable. (laughs) (laughs) I think for me, it is always about trying to fit into this, this form or whatever, like this genre, like this expectation that everything needs to fit neatly into some preconceived container. And I just don't believe that. I was working on a film in college and I had kind of an old school documentary filmmaking professor really give me a hard time for not wanting to use stage as transitions. And I was like, this looks like crap. I don't want to use that. Like a lot of people don't use that anymore. And he was adamant that that was within the documentary tradition. And I think that it fits into the advice of that sometimes you just got to listen to your own instincts and know what's good and not listen to people who are your superiors tell you what they think is good. Uh, do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Mm-hmm. Good That's question. So hard. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's like to, to want to be telling the story that I'm telling, you know, because when that when I get to a place where I don't want to be filming in the field and being with the characters, then that means that I need to abandon the project. So goal is to, I mean, I know that's not like a goal, you know, like a lofty kind of goal, but I mean, I, I think at this point I'm looking at like the, I, I, I'm not, a, I guess I'm mid-career, I could say, because <laughs> I hope that I have a lot of more years, but in reality, I might not. So I don't have a lot of time to waste. Yeah, I don't. I also don't know if this is a goal exactly. But I think that kind of a mantra that I think about a lot is as a documentary filmmaker, my goal is to create literature out of life itself. And so those moments where you sort of like really feel something from the film in the same way that like, if you're reading something that's uh, kind of lofty, like a great classic. Like I, I would love to be able to make films that make people feel like that. That's a huge lofty goal. And I'm not saying that we're doing that uh, to be clear, 
I do think that documentary films when they're really good have this sort of like poetry to them that they're oftentimes pulling on archetypes of really ancient kinds of stories. This is a, for our story. It's an odyssey. And I think that that's what we as a team are always striving for is those kind of like deep, deep, deep storytelling tropes and feelings. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? Gosh, you got good questions. Very good questions. <laughs> Hard. <clears throat> you go first, Christine. <laughs> no, I was going to say you go first, Cynthia. I was going to say you've got, you've got um, more life that you can think about than me right now. <laughs> the thing is, is that I did not know that I couldn't do it. That's what made me, that's why I was capable of accomplishing what I have accomplished is because I didn't know that I couldn't. And so I think that, you know, giving myself a little bit more of that kind of confidence and believing in myself a little bit more would have been even better. But, you know, again, it's like, I just didn't know I couldn't do it, which is a very strange thing, I think. I don't know if this is some filmmaking or therapy, but (laughs) I think... I think mine is let things happen and not and don't try to stress out too much about it. You know, like you are capable of managing challenges and, you know, no, not in not sleeping at night about something is not going to make you any, it's not going to make that any easier, right? Like you have the capacity to deal with a lot of different challenges. And so just, just go with it. It's going to be okay. And it'll pass. That hard stuff does pass. It will. It doesn't feel it like will. it's going to, but I, I make this joke a lot and I'm kind of serious when I make it that I make films because filmmaking is cheaper than therapy. (laughs) You know, and I I think we work out a lot of what we are dealing with personally, or at least I know I do in the films that I make. And, you know, the subject matter that I end up exploring has a lot to do with like, I think things that I'm processing internally or struggling with internally. So it's a way for me to ultimately, I think, learn more about myself. Great answers, first off. But final question is making movies hard? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I've been thinking about this a lot, actually. I think making movies is so hard that things just kind of have to be perfectly aligned for them to get made. You have to have the right team in place. You have to have, you have to be the right team. All these different pieces just have to come together. It's kind of a cosmic thing because otherwise, when it's not right, it just won't happen because it is so hard. And I tell students whenever I do any sort of guest lecturing that you better be extremely passionate about working on your film and the subject matter because it is so hard that you're going to want to quit almost daily. And now uh, that's perfect. (laughs) And last thing, tell people where to go watch Burner of Proof and how to support you as filmmakers. What should we do? What should listeners do now? Yeah, everyone should go watch it. Go go watch Burner of Proof. It's on Max right now and tweet about it and tell your friends about it. You know, we spent a long time on it and we really want people to watch it. Ditto. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show! Eric, since you were actually with me on this interview... 
What do you remember about our talk with Christinthia and Christine? I remember before we went into this, you've had a long-standing predilection, which is that you don't like to have two guests on at the same time. You really like to interview one person. And I now I completely see why. This was kind of a difficult... When, when Anyone who's ever talked to multiple people via Zoom, it's always a bit of a train wreck because you're never sure when someone is going to start talking or stop talking. And so there was many times where we would ask a question and Cynthia would answer or Christine would answer and then I would go to follow up and then only to have the other one then to give their answer as well and in fact you sent me a text while we were doing the interview like maybe we should wait for them both to answer and I just had said sorry but they were both you know fantastic I still feel like I'm in the dark a bit about how they live their lives I'm you know, you and I are, are narrative filmmakers, and I still am scared and confused when it comes to documentarian filmmakers, because I don't understand how you can be on a project for seven or eight years. Like, that's insane. That's so much work, and you're just going out with a camera trying to get lightning in a bottle. But to have them sustain their lives while they were doing this, and clearly they, they had probably other projects going on while they were doing this, but it seems like to have that kind of focus at some point, I just... I would just give up because <laughs> it's just so much work. But so I was, yeah. no, I was really impressed by the both of them. They're both extremely well-spoken and so calm and focused. What about you? What do you remember? Well, it's funny that you say that about like, hey, you don't know how they live their lives because, you know, I had, I had a, my first job was at a company called Studio B Films where the owner and the director and, and DP, basically the lead, the top guy, like he was a documentary filmmaker. Like he had a documentary go into Sundance, like in the eighties. And then like he worked on real world and he did all this other stuff. And like, basically what I did at Studio B was basically a version, I think of like what Christine kind of, how she came in to work with Cynthia. It's like they have their company that they work on multiple different projects and then they do other things like corporate video, I think, and commercial and other other stuff, it seemed like, in between the shows or like kind of whatever project would come their way. You know, that's like she's talking about this NASCAR thing and the, the cooking show she did for five seasons. So I feel like they have like lots of other things they were doing, you know, in addition to the, the Burden of Proof movie. Mm-hmm. But it's like Christine is just like, you know, Cynthia's right hand woman, you know, and maybe I didn't really get a sense that there was other people in the company that it was just the two of them. And then they would hire their editor, you know, here and there or whatever. But yeah, it just seemed really like a a very fascinating, interesting system and a very small, like beautiful, like little marriage between the two of them, you know, creative marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Also, funny that you say you see why we don't like having two guests. It's because Liz is the one who really feels that way. I mean, I get it. Like, I, I understand, like, why one guest is better. And I do prefer one guest. But like, you know, I think there are situations where two is really fun. And I've had three or even four before. But like, I thought this case Like, I saw why Alex, the PR person, was like, bring on Christine, because I felt like Cynthia and Christine really had a good melding, you know, like where Uh Cynthia could talk to one aspect of it and Christine could talk to another aspect to it. And it kind of like painted the whole picture. And that without Christine there to like tell the story of how like, you know, Stephen called like that, that first conversation with Stephen and then the Christine... Or Cynthia listening on, you know, in the other room and like giving hand signals <laughs> to Christine while she's on the yeah, phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just like a really beautiful story that like you wouldn't get, it wouldn't be as powerful if it was one or the other, you know? Yeah. So I was actually really happy that they both came on for this one. I thought it was a really cool mix. Yeah. 
Yeah, they, they they have such an interesting working dynamic. It was it was cool to hear them about how they work together for sure. Well, I think it's time, Eric, for your creation, the game. I love it when you say it. It's so much fun. All right, for those of you who don't know, the game was a game that I invented for Liz and Ulrich to play. For those who don't know, it is an uh, independent film quagmire or quandary that you may run into in pre, post, or production itself while making an independent film. So I create a question, I then send it to either Ulrich or to Liz, and then they read it for the first time in front of one another, and then they have to answer it. Now, of course, because I wrote it, I have read this before, so I'm going to read it to Ulrich, and you can give your explanation, and then I will go ahead and give my answer. Now, (laughs) full disclosure, I kind of wrote this with Liz in mind, so we're at a bit of a a deficit now that she is not here, But, but here we go. You've just finished your festival run on your latest feature. Although it was a good run, the film didn't receive the audience attendance nor awards you were looking for. However, the people who do connect with the film are fanatical, and you believe that the film could gain cult status. When it comes to distribution, your sales agent presents you with a few offers. One is with the larger streamers, Netflix, Amazon, etc. And the other is with some much smaller streamers, Freevee, IMDb TV, etc. Neither will give you any money up front, but the smaller streamers will promote your film. Do you A, go with the larger streamers because it holds a larger audience and it will be easier for the masses to find your film. B, go with the smaller streamers because rather than it just being a thumbnail on a streamer, it will be promoted. C, hold out for a third option. D, other. What do you do, director? What do you do? Sorry, so, and how much money do I get? Do I know how much money I get for the first one for the streamer? Or we don't know? Well, okay, couple things. First off, a st- there's no way a streamer could not give you any money like because they don't re- they don't record their their numbers so how could they give mon- you money on the back end from a streamer deal like they're gonna only there's never gonna be a situation where they wouldn't give you any money like you know, right uh, like that just doesn't okay, what, happen what I was going for is with traditional streamers when you rank up when you bank up enough views you will get residuals as a result of it but they're not going to give you any upfront money you're not going to get an MG money do they do that do they give residuals for a lot of views I thought that they didn't I thought they just gave you a, a flat deal and that was it and you were done no you you get money off of uh, off of streamers uh, if you reach a certain amount of views then you will get money back it is a very small amount of money but yeah are you talking about like Netflix or Netflix like and Amazon HBO and Max. Hulu, all of those. I, I, HBO, I don't know, is kind of a different, maybe a different monster. But I know for Netflix and Amazon and Hulu. And let me let me make an amendment that <laughs> so as to to fit within this, you will be getting the exact same amount from the larger streamers and from the smaller streamers. It is a very small amount, but sure. the smaller streamers will promote your film. Which one do you and go then- with? For the smaller streamers, who are they? Are you talking about like Tubi? Like who's which? Like talking like yeah, Freevee, Tubi, smaller okay. smaller spaces like that. Hmm. And do I still get my back end that I normally get through Tubi and and Freevee in those places? In addition to the small money up front? No, you're just you're getting the exact same amount that you would okay. get from both. Yeah. Well, because like the the thing that's so great about Tubi is that like there's a chance you could actually make some money based off your views because of the, the advertising and everything. And if they were promoting it, then it would be like, oh, super cool. Like I'm being promoted by Tubi. So the chance of me actually making some money is even greater. But, like if we're taking money out of the equation and we're just saying like it's the same money, same situation, small streamer versus big streamer. I would go with big streamer. 
Because it's way better to say my movie's on Netflix than for, to say my movie's on Tubi. You know, like, it just sounds better. Mm-hmm. It looks better. People take you more seriously. If you, if you could, like, meet somebody, like, cool who, like, might want to support you as a filmmaker or, like, work with you on a project, you can be like, yo, it's on Netflix. And, like, they'll be like, oh, cool. On net, like, awesome. You know, or even Hulu, you know, or, or HBO. It's, like, it just is way cooler to say that than to say it's on Tubi or Freebie or other, you know, <laughs> voodoo. So, yeah, if, if everything's the same money-wise, definitely go with the streamer. Okay. Yeah, what about you? What would you do? I would say if the money was all the same, I would go with the company that is promoting the film a little bit. It may be a little bit harder to find, but I think the fact that they're they're actually trying to promote it some, that that means something to me. So, and I think about like, you know, the, the films that I loved growing Growing up were films that were kind of off the beaten path that took a little bit of time or, or effort to kind of get to. And so I think that it might be the same situation here where it's it's not going to be the mainest of mainstream. But at the same time, I think the real film nerds hopefully will find it. And that's that's my people, film nerds, because that's me. Nice. Yeah, I feel like the film nerds find it on on Tubi, which is crazy. Like, I've had multiple people reach out to me and said they've seen my movie, or, like, even just random, where, like, I was one of our guests. You were there, actually, Gatto. He was like, yeah, I saw yeah. Your, your trailer, and, oh, yeah, yeah. I saw it's on Tubi. I was like, what? <laughs> like, I'll watch it tonight. I was like, really? You know my movie? You don't even know who I am? Oh, it's amazing. I love it. <laughs> Crazy. But that's that I mean it just feel like there is a group of people who are watching whatever they can in the genre of their of their 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 top genres on Tubi. Yeah. Which is pretty pretty cool. And f- I guess all these freebie all the, all these places. But yeah, if you guys have any thoughts on this, let us know. What would you do? Am I wrong? Is Eric wrong? Are we both wrong? Who's right? Let us know. And you can always send us your question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at Making Movies is Hard. Or if you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. And finally, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at MMIH Podcast, and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Check out the International Screenwriter Association. The ISA is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, and their top 25 writers list featuring some of the best writers. So head over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks to Cynthia Hill and Christine Depp for coming on to the show. Thanks to Alex Pelcher from Felco Inc. for setting this up. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Vrymoot, for doing the editing. Thanks to Robert Jones for handling all of our social media. And thanks to me, producer Eric Tobbs, for being awesome. And thanks to all of you for listening. And talk to you all next week. they made together across eight years they talk about how they discover the story seven years no 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 that's i'm oh, just i'm it, just shocked at uh, oh, seven years sorry <laughs> i'm sorry. i will keep any movement to myself our house is a mess come on in i'm amber wallen internet comedian plant queen and host of your new favorite podcast fly on the wall okay that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast by the way like come on amber anyway that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband and co-host benjamin wallen also a comedian and i host people at our home i have a great wine collection in my cellar well, you it's mean a cellar. the mini fridge it's a mini yeah, it's a mini yeah. fridge new episodes of fly 
on The Wild and Drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.